Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This week on Commons People, can we ever stop new variants? It's important to say the system has not failed. This is a comprehensive system across the whole of government. This isn't just border force and the Home Office. This is a system that has been put in place across government, working with the Department of Trans- um, Transport in particular, but also working with the JBC, who I understand um, have given evidence in private to the committee recently. Um, and the fact of the matter is we do have an end-to-end comprehensive approach when it comes to border security, but importantly, health measures at the border, and that is through the 100% compliance, the checks that we have in place, and of course, um, as the country will be very well aware, with the red, amber, green traffic light system um, that is put in place. And what should Keir Starmer spend his summer doing? Trust, and that trust has to be earned. And what I heard tonight was people, they weren't saying, I'll never trust you. What I heard them saying is, um, I have lost trust in Labour, but I might, I might, have trust in the future, but it's down to you to earn it. Um, and that I will do, um, you know, sweating blood over the next days, weeks, months and years into the next general election. Hello and welcome to Commons People, HuffPost's politics podcast. I'm Ned Simons. I'm joined by Paul Wall. Hi, Paul. How are you? Hi, Ned. Nice to see you again. And our guest this week is Yvette Cooper, the Labour Chair of the Commons Home Affairs Committee. Hi, Yvette. How are you? Hi, nice to see you. As England unlocks, COVID cases have surged largely due to the Delta variant. Um, here's Priti Patel defending the government's border policy yesterday. It's important to say the system has not failed. This is a comprehensive system across the whole of government. This isn't just border force and the Home Office. This is a system that has been put in place across government, working with the Department of Trans- um, Transport in particular, but also working with the JBC, who I understand um, have given evidence in private to the committee recently. Um, and the fact of the matter is we do have an end-to-end comprehensive approach when it comes to border security, but importantly, health measures at the border and that is through the 100% compliance the checks that we have in place and of course um, as the country will be very well aware with the red amber green traffic light system um, that is put in place. So that was the Home Secretary um, being grilled by um, you Yvette yesterday at the committee. Um, I kind of wanted to ask you to begin with what's it like um, dealing with um, Priti Patel's sort of unique way of answering questions by kind of talking for a long time and maybe not answering them? It's very common often that ministers, if they don't want to talk about something, will talk for a very long time um, in answer to questions. And it's quite hard because you don't want to be interrupting them the whole time. I think probably Priti Patel does it much more than previous Home Secretaries that we've had. Um, and also will will tell you a lot about something that we've not asked about at all, something completely different. Um, we certainly got quite a lot of that uh, yesterday. 
and that can make for what ends can end up being quite a, a tetchy discussion because you have to continually interrupt you have to continually come back to I know but we're out trying to ask this question and I think you saw that yesterday from both uh, Conservative and Labour and SNP members of the committee all getting a bit frustrated and all having to, to interrupt so it's not an ideal way to do scrutiny but it's our job we've got to ask the questions we've got to keep you know probing to try and get to the facts to try and get the actual answers out um, and and sometimes we succeed more than others and do you think Yvette that actually the permanent secretary often tries to bail out the home secretary um, or the officials to say like actually minister this is what we're doing or whatever I mean does that happen a lot so you do often will get um, officials will will come in with more detail. So if the uh, minister or the Home Secretary doesn't know the answers, then ministers will step in. I, I think we've got a slightly more troubling situation at the moment with the Home Office where they're actually not just not giving us the facts at all. In fact, you know, things that they've said to us. Um, certainly at previous committee meetings and arguably at yesterday's committee as well are just wrong. They're just not true, the things that they have said to us. So we were told repeatedly, for example, we've been asking questions about Napier Barracks, where there's been this huge outbreak of COVID because um, people who were asylum seekers in need of accommodation were put into huge dormitories. And you don't put dormitory people into dormitories in the middle of a COVID crisis. That is, I mean, that should just be obvious to everybody. And there was clear public health advice against doing so. The Home Office has repeatedly told us that they followed public health advice in putting people into dormitories and they clearly did not we've got the written evidence of it now the courts have confirmed it and yet even yesterday they still both the home secretary and the permanent secretary still maintained to us that they had followed public health guidance and it is simply not true and that really troubles me actually when the civil servants are also reinforcing the the things that ministers are saying that are just wrong because you know the civil servants do have a duty to impartiality of you know responsibility to be accurate um, about the facts it's obviously a big concern for me that the home secretary is not telling us the accurate situation but it troubles me in terms of the civil servant situation as well. Yeah, and, and a lot of that committee as well yesterday was about the kind of um, the border policy. Um, you know, briefly, I suppose, what do you think the main mistake the government made um, with the borders and, and COVID? and what should they have done and when was the right time to do that? So we're in obviously a much stronger position than other countries in having the natural borders to be able to deal with a virus situation. So like New Zealand, like Australia, like Singapore, like Hong Kong, like South Korea, there are other countries who've had uh, similar uh, potential to do what we could have done, be much stronger on the borders from the very beginning. And the government just wasn't. I think that Boris Johnson personally just didn't take this seriously as an issue. I think everybody was a bit slow at the beginning, but then all over the world, you saw countries introducing tests, introducing quarantine rules, introducing much stronger checks and the UK just didn't. And that is why we had that big surge at the very beginning. So the very beginning of, of the COVID crisis uh, escalated much faster than it needed to because there were so many people coming back, particularly from holiday from Italy, Spain, France, and so on, who were had picked up COVID and then were spreading it around the country. So that was clearly a big error in the first wave of COVID and meant that the pandemic was worse and the first wave lasted longer than it otherwise would have done. But I think they still haven't learned the lessons. So now the big issue is 
new variants. Now, obviously, fantastic, we've got this vaccine programme rolled out, but we need to protect the vaccine programme, get it fully rolled out, and make sure we don't have new variants that undermine it or that move faster than the vaccines. And the problem with the Delta variant is it's moved so fast, it's outpacing the vaccine, and that's why we're seeing hospital cases going up. And again, they were just too slow. There's too many delays in the system, too much resistance, and I think probably the Prime Minister personally is just resistant to taking the action we need. They could have put India on the red list much earlier. They could also have tighter home quarantine rules than they have, especially for countries where there's that real risk of new variants arising. So to try and get ahead of it this time, what, what do you think they need to do now? They need to shut the border again or properly shut it, reintroduce the no travel law? What, what's the, the thing that you would do to, to get ahead of the game, as it were? So we're in a new phase now because we've got to get the vaccine fully rolled out. So we've still got those extra couple of months to get the vaccine fully rolled out. But then we're into a new phase where it's all about new variants. And obviously we want people to be able to travel, visit friends, relatives, get that holiday people have been desperate for. So we want those things to get back to normal. But that means you need a really vigilant system for assessing new variants. It means you need to be able to move very fast when there is evidence in a country that things seem to be picking up suddenly which is what happened in India. With India they didn't fully know what was going on with new variants but they did know that cases were rocketing. That should have been evidence to say hang on something's happening let's take a precautionary approach right we're going to have stronger restrictions in place while we investigate. As it is they just wait for weeks and weeks. NerveTag told the Prime Minister, that's the, one of the key committees, told the, um, the government they needed to review the travel advice on the 16th of April. Actually, the evidence had already amounted before that. They said it on the 16th of April. The government didn't put India on the red list until a week later. So you have to have things that move fast. And then you have to also publish all of the assessments so people can make their own decisions as well, make informed decisions. If you know, for example, that the Joint Biosecurity Committee has done an assessment on France and they've been warning about the beta variant and they've been warning about this and that, but they've not put it on the red list, but they're telling you these are the issues. Well, you can then make your decision. Do you take the risk? And, and then you've got that transparency as well. And then people have to just expect, well, if there's a risk of new variants, things will chop and change much more frequently than, you know, than if you're just going to ignore it and just say, do you know what, we'll, we'll just let it rip all over again, which is what they've done on Delta. It's true, isn't it? There's a lot of secrecy about how they about they how they put people on the amber list, the red list, the green list. It, it's, it's really not very transparent at all how they come up with their decisions. And yeah, maybe some kind of early warning system would be, would be useful for everybody, you know, at least so they can make their own minds up early. Why not do weekly publications, just a weekly assessment of an update? Some countries, nothing will change each week from one yeah. week to another. It'll still be exactly the same, but some countries will change. And you just have joint biosecurity centers assessment. Their minutes aren't published, their assessments aren't published. Sage's minutes are published. Why not on the joint biosecurity center? They might have some information that they can't publish, that they might have been given by another country that's, that's not published, but most of it, they can. And they should just tell us each week what they think is happening that would also mean other scientists could look at it and say we think you're not worrying enough about what's happening here we think in, and challenge it and have a public debate about it 
and it would be much better for the travel industry, much better for, um, you know, for, for other scientists, for a public debate. And I think you'd be more likely to get better results if you did it openly rather than in this secrecy where nobody trusts what the government's up to because it just feels so chaotic. Paul, how tricky do you think the border issue is for the government? I mean, are the, are the Conservative Party quite vulnerable on this politically? I think they are vulnerable and I think they're worried about it because they know that Labour has now got a, a tougher stance than the government, um, which is, you know, not something you could have said for the last five years, let's be frank, on anything to do with law and order. So um, I think that uh, you've seen Nick Thomas-Simmons really push hard this line that uh, this is the Johnson variant and on the India point that Yvette's been leading the way on. I think more broadly, though, um, Security generally is a bit of a, a vulnerable spot for the government. I mean, I think we can talk about this a bit later, but I think Labour definitely, their, their strategy for the summer is to talk about security as a buzzword. Security for health, security and income when the furlough um, finally sort of tapers off and security in your street as well as national security. So, and, and street security, crime and social behaviour, is definitely being pushed by Labour. I think they realise that's one good way of, of uniting different voter groups. And everyone talks about this phrase, a voter coalition. Well, uh, um, you know, in old fashioned speakers, trying to attract as many votes as you can get from everyone. Uh, and um, I think they realise that um, crime and social behaviour is definitely coming up on the doorstep a lot. I don't know what you think, Yvette. I mean, it, is, it sounds like a bit of Tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. And Keir Starmer talked about preventive public services, you know, education, youth work, early years, investing in all those um, as a as another way of also being getting more police on the streets, etc. So, I don't know. Do you think it's going to work as a strategy? I mean, you 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 yourself have have done some of this stuff in opposition. At what point do you think that it begins to work on a government like this one? Well, I think you have to start from it being the right thing to do. You know, we should be tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. It's the right approach. There is a problem with growing antisocial behaviour, a growing sense of frustration that crimes aren't getting solved. The, there's a like 30% drop in prosecutions over the last five years at a time when recorded crime has been going up. So people feel like victims aren't getting justice. There isn't proper action and you need more neighbourhood policing in particular. But you also need to prevent crime in the first place. And that, you know, when you've lost your youth service, when you've seen, I had a head teacher who said to me, we have seen antisocial behaviour go up in this area. And I've seen it over time since we lost Sure Start. Right. And she put it back to they're actually having lost the Sure Start, having an impact seven or eight years later in terms of antisocial behaviour and, and the impact in the community. So I think you start from the fact that it's the right thing to do. And that is what then roots it in communities across the country and means it is what people respond to. And there is a frustration, I think, people um, are increasingly getting that the government says things, but they don't actually deliver. So they keep talking about this police, but actually we're not seeing extra police on our streets and we're not seeing things get any better and we're not seeing crime, you know, the problems around crime and antisocial behaviour get better. And... Therefore, I think actually Labour's having strong things to say about that and about pulling communities together and about community safety, I think is really important and will connect with people. Well, talking about Labour is a nice kind of segue into our next section. Um, kind of as Parliament heads into recess, um, Keir Starmer is self-isolating for the fourth time, I think. 
um, just gets pinged all the time. Um, he might be using kind of his time uh, in quarantine to think about how to use the summer to um, close the gap in the polls. And here's Starmer telling the BBC he'll be sweating blood to earn back the trust of voters. Trust, and that trust has to be earned. And what I heard tonight was people, they weren't saying, I'll never trust you. What I heard them saying is, um, I have lost trust in Labour, but I might, I might have trust in the future, but it's down to you to earn it. Um, and that I will do, um, you know, sweating blood over the next days, weeks, months and years into the next general election. Paul, if you imagine you're Starmer right now, how are you feeling about Labour's chances uh, to win the next election? Well, I think the thing about Keir Starmer is um, his watchword is strategic patience, isn't he? He's, he seems to be somebody who tries to bide his time and pick his moment. Um, uh, but the problem is that there's obviously a real need for urgency now. You know, there could be a general election in 2023. And I think the people around him, particularly the new team, everyone's beginning to get a sense of that urgency. You saw a bit of it in PMQs this week that the gloves are finally off. You know, having done the quotes responsible thing on the pandemic, a lot of the public didn't want Punch and Judy on the pandemic. But now it's got to a stage where um, I think Starmer said in PMQs, if the prime minister keeps asking me if I'll support his chaos, the answer is no. Um, and that was quite clear, sort of, you know, drawing a line in the sand that you, you, we're going to get a lot tougher with you. And you can see that on COVID passports, for example, I mean, the Tories may well vote with Labour on that um, to defeat it, for example. Um, uh, and across the piece, I think they're a bit more up for the fight, shall we say. And they've changed their organisation. You've got people like Conor McGinn and Shabana Mahmood who've, who've made a big difference. Um, but, you know, the polls are still where they are. I think there was one surveillance poll this week that actually gave a bit of hope. I think it narrowed the gap by seven points. Um, so there were, I think there was now a, a much, I think the Tories were down by four and Labour up by three or something. That We'll see whether that sustains itself. I think that um, if I were um, Keir Starmer, I would just start repeating all the things we just talked about, which is crime and antisocial behaviour, security. That sounds like a, a winning message that can possibly unite people. And I think more importantly, maybe they need to do a bit more of this general sense of uniting the nation, healing the nation after the divisions of Brexit, after you know the pandemic. Um, whereas at the moment, and all the culture war stuff that goes on, there's a sense that the PM really does love division because he can exploit it quite cynically. So, I mean, maybe that's unfair, but I don't know. What do you think, Yvette? I mean, are you frustrated by the fact that despite everything, Boris Johnson is still ahead in the polls? I think it has obviously been an odd year and a completely unique year in terms of politics. But look, we have to say Labour's got to do a lot more. We've all got to do a lot more. And we are working our way back step by step from, you know, what was a very difficult um, defeat for us. And we've got to earn votes back. But I think I think we have to do it through optimism. We we had we did well with the West Yorkshire mayor elections for us, Tracy Bravin as our candidate, and it was just the most optimistic, positive campaign. So I think we combine that security. Labour's the one that wants to pull people together. We want to come together to be able to look after each other, to support each other, to give each other security. But then we also want to be optimistic about the future and believe that our future can be better than things are today. We can be angry about injustice 
justice. We can be angry about the utter chaos, the bumbling nature of the prime minister who doesn't just like division. He actually just likes chaos and being able to kind of mess around and sort of a child. We instead need to be the ones that want to pull the country together, but with that optimism. And the area I would say I think we can, can do more, where there's some great policies starting to come through, is championing children. Children have had the roughest of years, and we need everybody to come together to get kids back on track, because otherwise we'll be facing a crisis in a few years' time. But actually, if you give the kids the support now to get back on track, then, you know, children are so resilient. They're so amazing. They could all do wonderful things in the future, but they need that support. So we're, we're campaigning on that locally this summer, and we haven't got the catch-up support we should have had from the government. That is ridiculous, and it's completely wrong and unfair. So we're working with local businesses, with local schools, to fund activities, summer holiday activities, fun trips and treats, the kind of things that can raise children's confidence and aspirations. We're doing it because, look, it takes a village to raise a child. There's always people say that. So we all come together like we did. We came together to support each other through the pandemic and through the lockdowns. Let's all come together now to support our children as we come out of the pandemic. And I think Labour can do that. And that's the thing I think we can be shouting a lot more about as well as the security side of things and on things like childcare I've been quite surprised actually childcare has been a big issue in the pandemic yet the government have been virtually silent on it I mean there's lots of nurseries closing or not just um, because of you know shortages but because they financially are struggling a bit like care homes you know some nurseries have, have really struggled um, and more generally the costs for parents are going up for, for early years like you, you talked about sure start the government I think Andrea Ledson this week admitted that um, it was a big error closing so many sure starts um, do you think that actually the party should be saying a lot more about childcare? I mean surely at the next election you need a big offer something that's as exciting as sure start was yeah, I think we will. I think we will get into to that space by the time we get to the to the general election. I think the the I think um, uh, Kate Green and, and the team are right to concentrate on catch up at the moment. The the immediate support, but that has to include early years support as well. And so that's why I want to see the road building back of Shore Starts. It's just tragic that we had seen so many of them close. We know they worked. They were brilliant and were so much in so many different ways, supporting children's development, but also helping parents to work, helping parents build confidence, building communities, community links. So I think bringing back Shore Start, but also, I mean, look, I've campaigned in the past for a sort of universal childcare um, offer and, and things as well. So we'll obviously have to have those debates within the party uh, and work out what the priorities are by the time we get to a manifesto. But I would expect childcare to be an important part of that. You mentioned, um, Yvette, that you think the party needs to kind of present an optimistic uh, vision to the country. Do you think that was lacking in the past? Do you think it was a bit too kind of downbeat in previous years? I think we had the the, the 2019 um, election, I think there were sort of flashes of optimism, but people didn't believe in them, you know, because it wasn't credible. So it's a what you've got to do is have a sort of credible optimism. So, you know, with with Tracy's campaign, we had five key pledges and it was very specific what Tracy was pledging to do, 
but it was in a very sort of optimistic, we're proud of Yorkshire, we're proud of West Yorkshire, West Yorkshire can, you know, we want to be able to do better in West Yorkshire, but we're proud of what West Yorkshire can do. So I think you have that sense of pride in the country and optimism about what more we can do, who we can be, the way we can, you know, get much better quality jobs, the way we can make the most of new technology to build opportunities um, and to, you know, to help our kids have better chances in life, to care for the elderly. So, you know, it's got to be practical, it's got to be deliverable, it can't be pie in the sky because people are fed up of that. But it's still also got to be, um, I think, an appeal to the country. Let's come together and do things much better than we do today. And it's interesting, Kim Ledbetter had a sense of that optimism, didn't she, in Batley? And uh, the street politics was very local. And, and I think that's what really helped her over the line. But in places like Hartlepool, how do you explain Hartlepool, Yvette, looking back? I mean, it just seems such an extraordinary result. Or do you think it was something that was inevitable? So I think um, the, the, there was an additional factor in Hartlepool compared to Batley and Spen or compared to two other areas that are sometimes compared, which is the, the mayor um, who was popular. Um, and I think people therefore had seen that sense of local delivery or a different aspect um, as well compared to um, other areas where obviously in, uh, in Greater Manchester and in, in Liverpool where we've had Labour mayors in place who've also been delivering things and showing practical impact. So I think in the same way you had that support for, um, especially as people have come through a tough year and through a sort of tough COVID period, I think that was an added factor of you know, people that they've seen delivering for them locally in a tough year, um, I think added to, to the support. But look, I think the, the, there is a wider thing though that it reflects, which is that um, actually Labour has still got a long way to go. And um, a long way to rebuild that people um, were very frustrated, whether it was by the um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's leadership that they didn't support or whether it was because the second referendum policy that they didn't support. There were a lot of those things that caused us big problems in a lot of um, areas across the north. And actually, we have to recognise that. But we've also got to have that, I think, that optimistic vision of the future is what pulls people back together again now. I remember you said, I think straight after the referendum in 2016, you made quite clear, look, we've got to, we've got to accept this result. You were really clear about it and you got a bit of flack at the time for saying it. Do you think looking back that actually that, that sense, look, we've got to accept the voters' de democratic wish. Do you think the party should have done a lot more of that and you could have maybe helped avoid even going down the second referendum route? Yeah, I think um, I think there was a basically there was a failing on all sides after the referendum. What we should have done was I think we should have had um, a sort of cross party commission. We should have had citizens assemblies involving people across the country. There was immediately afterwards, if you remember, most people voted for Article 50. There was a sense that, OK, we are going to all pull together. Um, but I think it then it fell apart. And some of that was Theresa May, that uh, she didn't reach out, she didn't try and build consensus. We needed to pull people together, didn't matter how they'd voted in the referendum, everybody should then have pulled together to think, okay, what is the best possible Brexit deal? 
Now, I always thought a customs union was the best way to do it, but other people had different views and we should have been having that as a positive debate. And, and that fell apart. And there were, for a lot of people, actually, to be honest, who, whether they voted leave or remain, who just felt, you know, you should respect the result because you should respect the rules. And so, therefore, that, I think, was a, was a factor. But look, you know, we're, whatever, four or five years on from those debates now. There were things that could have happened differently, I think, right back from the very beginning and should have been done differently on all sides. But now what we have to do is to get on with things, to try and get the best possible trade deals, the best possible vision for what Britain's role is in the world now going forward. Um, I think Rachel Reeves um, things about uh, quality jobs in Britain, about building more in Britain, about buying more, selling more from Britain, I think are, are great things to be talking about in terms of the economy and in terms of strengthening the British economy. Now it has to all be about about how we move forward. And do you think that maybe Labour should, I mean, particularly in seats like yours, where you had quite a few leave voters, um, Labour's one way of unifying the country could be to say, be honest and just say, look, we will deliver a better Brexit than than Boris Johnson and actually use that phrase, a better Brexit, because there's still some people in the party who don't even you can tell they think any kind of Brexit is not a good thing. But do you think Labour should start owning it and saying we'll deliver a better Brexit? Well, Brexit's happened. Brexit's done. The issue now is what is our role in the world? What kind of relationship do we want with other countries? What kind of trading relationship? What kind of cooperation on climate change, cooperation on policing? And we do it in a different way now to the way that we did it before. But actually, we should be looking at what is the best way to do that for the future. And, you know, that won't always be simple. It won't take time and, and so on. And then there's all of the other you know, domestic issues about uh, about crime, about the NHS and about our children's future and, and so on as well. But part of that vision will be about what kind of role in the world that we want to play in future. I was going to ask Yvette about these expulsion of these these factions this week. I don't know what you, you thought of that. Was that that's actually long overdue? Yeah, I think the um, we want the Labour Party to also feel a, a positive place for members and not to have some of the, um, the sort of problems that we've had previously, some of the, the difficulties with, with people who didn't really seem to want a Labour government and where, you know, we'd had obviously the problems with anti-Semitism that had to be dealt with. Um, so I think that's right. Yeah. And I was going to ask you, I mean, were you flattered by that poll by YouGov for Sky last month, which said that you were the favourite amongst Labour Party members if there was another leadership contest. And you might even, the very phrase another leadership contest might make your heart <laughs> sink, particularly given what happened in 2015. But I mean, we learned from Boris Johnson that, you know, it took him two goes. I mean, have you, have you thought actually it's still an option at some point in the future? I think we probably had quite enough leadership contests for a while. <laughs> I think, uh, well, I think we, I think we have to get on with things. <laughs> okay, I'll, say, I'll take that as a never say never. <laughs> okay, quiz. quiz time. It's extremely stupid. Um, um, so it, oh I mean, God, that's even it, harder. <laughs> it's about borders. So there's just three questions. Um, so it's sort of your brief, Yvette. Um, 
Yeah, but that makes it worse. If it's my brief, yeah. I'm supposed to know the answers. <laughs> I, I think I'm just going to just, you know, yeah, plead the Probably fifth win. now because then you'll humiliate me and ask me something really obvious that I just ought to know and I will not know. To be honest, if anyone actually knows these answers, I'll be surprised because it's heavily <laughs> Googling from me. Okay, so um, which countries have the longest international land border, the shared border? Oh, God. Must be Russia. shared border yeah. between yeah, yeah. two countries, Russia and China. Close, but no. Or Mo Paul, Russia and Mongolia. I don't know. No, it's it's um the US and Canada. Oh wow! Because also remember they've got the Alaska bit as well. Oh God, yeah. God, I never thought. Of that. No, somebody somebody told me there's a there's a Lake Lake Powell in um uh in america it's sort of around the utah and arizona um borders it has a longer uh like coastline of because it's got little inlets and things it's got a longer coastline than the west coast of america i don't know if that's true wow. but somebody did tell it to me and i did think that was quite that's 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 ed, that's ed ball style trivia that is <laughs> yeah exactly actually it's probably <laughs> <to me. laughs> we'll, we'll just say it's true who can prove us wrong yeah. Okay. Uh, question two: um, Which country borders the most other countries? Oh God! Which country has basically got the most borders? I guess. Um, uh, oh, would that be somewhere in Central Africa? I don't know. Uh, or would it be Liechtenstein? It's a big country, isn't it? Might it actually be Russia again or something? Because it's a, it's a big country that's just got lots of different countries sticking off it at different places. It is a big country yeah but it's not Russia. oh brazil no so it's china um oh god although china uh, russia and russia and brazil it's got 14 countries that borders apparently wow there you go i'm learning so something go. new okay and then the, the the last question to put us out of our misery um where's the shortest international land border god there's absolutely zero way anyone would ever get this unless you knew it already. Is it Andorra? I'm guessing. No, it's not Andorra, I'm afraid. Yvette? No chance. Okay. No. It's um it's between Zambia and Botswana and it's 150 meters long. Wow. It's just yeah, we wouldn't have got yeah, that. No, That's I, brilliant trivia. There you go. There's some there's some trivia I may have Googled um half an hour ago. So um <laughs> this was the um this is the last commons people for a few weeks, uh, because we're having a break for the summer. Um thank you for joining us, Yvette. Thank you for listening. Um we'll return um uh, next kind of after the summer. Um if you miss us, our back catalogue is available wherever you get your podcasts. Um please leave a review and subscribe. You can get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to Paul's Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. And I'll leave you with Labour MPs in chorus shouting no during PMQs when Boris Johnson asked if he should repeat an answer following a technology fail. And, and Wait, Prime Minister, just a moment. We're really struggling on the sound level. I don't know whether we can actually have the sound level turned up to hear the Prime Minister. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, Prime, if you... Thank you, Prime Minister. Otherwise, you've got a great standing who's quite desperate. But I want to hear this, Prime Minister. I always... Do you want me to have another go, Mr Speaker? Hang on a minute. Is it this thing here?
I won't quite well. People were decided to be quite roaded, but I can hear you now. Continue halfway can through. Can you hear me, Speaker? Mr. Speaker, can you hear me? Can hear you loud and clear, Prime Minister. Do you, do you want me to give that answer again? Oh, don't worry. Just complete the end I'm bit. I'm very happy. I will repeat it. I, I will, I'll say it as many times as you like. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.